Go ahead and pick your speed up your number one now. Runway 27, clear to land green dot. Welcome to Oshkosh, guys. Hello and welcome back to The Green Dot, EAA's podcast for anyone and everyone who loves aviation. The Green Dot, sponsored by GE Aviation. My name's Hal Bryan, and I'm EAA's Senior Editor for Print and Digital Content and Publications, and one of your hosts here on The Green Dot, sitting on my left. I'm one of the other hosts. My name's Chris Henry. I'm the EAA Museum Programs Coordinator. And way over there, across the table with that look on his face, (laughs) I'm the other host, Tom Charpentier, Government Relations Director. Excellent. Always good to have the uh, have the whole band together here. And uh, joining us, or sitting in, coming coming to us uh, via the magic of the internet is uh, Stole Pilot Extraordinaire. That's a that's a word that uh, that applies quite perfectly uh, to this gentleman, and also a current airline pilot, uh, Bobby Breeden. Bobby, welcome. Thank you, Hal. Glad to be here. Now, Bobby, when we met, you were. Uh, you know, I think you were still a teenager when we when we first met several years ago here at Oshkosh. So I should ask, do you still go by Bobby, or have I been embarrassing both of us? No, that's uh, that's what I go by. Okay, for sure, and uh, not not too far away from my teenage years, still here. Right. So <laughs> you're an old man of you know twenty something. So. Yes. <laughs> Excellent. Well, we're sure glad to uh, glad to have you here, and uh, you know we've always enjoyed seeing you fly at Oshkosh, and and my gosh, some of the some of the videos we see bouncing around the internet. And I, I think if if somebody out there listening doesn't know your name, if they have uh, if they have existed anywhere on social media and enjoyed any kind of cool flying videos, they've probably seen you. That's possible uh well yeah and again it's great to be here thank you for uh, letting me share the airwaves with you today the uh yeah if they've they've shown any interest in backcountry flying or off airport operations short takeoff and landing stuff it might have come across a few of my videos is there uh uh, before we get uh into the sort of the meat of the thing is there a single video out there that you think is probably either your best your favorite or is the one that you would say you're best known for like one of the super short landings or off the cliff or any of those things yeah so the the diving off the cliff uh with the glacier in the background was the original video that actually got the attention of red bull and we worked on some projects with them Uh, my personal favorite is probably uh the drifting the airplane in the snow so doing the donuts around the cameraman which is my dad in the snow on on some glare ice with fresh powder on it uh do three donuts around him and then taking off again i think that one um was one of my among my first viral videos you know i posted that and just on facebook and within it had over a million views in the first 24 hours and that was um kind of eye-opening as to to the power of social media and the internet and and how much you can share uh what you're passionate about well make sure to uh to include links or embed those videos in the the post that goes up with this uh, this podcast when it goes live, and in, in the meantime, I was just sitting here thinking, if I had done donuts around my dad in anything, I mean, a car, much less an airplane, it would not have ended well uh, <laughs> at, at all. He would not have been been happy about that. But let's uh, let's go back to the beginning, uh, as we always like to do with with most of our guests on this uh, this show. Um, talk about. Uh, your earliest exposure to aviation, how you got involved, if you have a, a particular first or very early aviation memory, that sort of thing. Sure. So I got involved uh, pretty much from day one. Um, 
my dad had bought a Super Cub right after I was born, uh, 1977 Piper Cub from Canada, and had been in a barn for a long time, so it was relatively low time, and he still has that plane. So I grew up flying that with him, just in the back seat, and we ended up going on a lot of trips together, especially in my teenage years, as I showed started to show a strong interest in aviation. We flew uh, almost to every state, back and forth to Alaska a few times, and eventually ended up being predominantly only flying in Alaska through my college years uh, after the end of high school. And the, the first memory that I could share with you since you asked that I recollect would be sitting in the back of the plane, you know, the Cubs wide enough for me being maybe three or four years old and my sister next to me, we would fly over the pond and actually drop, drop uh, pumpkins out of the window into the, into the water and watch, you know, the big <laughs> blast looking like a depth charge or something. Uh, uh, always uh, ensuring the <laughs> safety, of course, of, of people in the aircraft and uh, persons and property on the ground, right, Tom? That's correct, yes. So just, just checking well, in with the was, FARs here. Yeah, well, it was all on private property uh, on, you know, uh, all of the surrounding land was private property and it was, you know, in the vicinity of a private runway. Um, so yes, all, all, all FARs were complied with in, in, in that, uh, instance without a doubt. That would have been, uh, that would have just been a kick. What a, what a profound, uh, and just ridiculously fun experience to happen at such a young age. Yeah. And, and honestly, it's, it hasn't stopped. I've, I've, I haven't grown up very much as most of us in aviation. Uh, and in fact, my entire life, I've, I've always lived on a runway, uh, since, since the start. So I, I grew up in Virginia on a farm with an airstrip, which was really just a, a mode field and, uh, took that to Embry Riddle aeronautical university in Daytona, which is of course on a big runway was there for a year. And then I moved to Spruce Creek fly in the biggest <laughs> air park in the world where I'm sitting right now. And I've been for the last five years. Um, so it's always been on a runway and always been able to, you know, walk out the front door and, and jump into an airplane and, and, uh, go share that with like-minded people as, I uh, have done very much of in, in Spruce Creek now. That's so very cool. I grew up on a private air park near Seattle, and I you know moved out when I was 18, and ever since I've wondered why. You know, yeah. why, did, why did I leave? Yeah, what? and I, I mentioned that I'd spent summers in Alaska. My dad has actually, since I graduated high school, he's moved up there full time. So he lives just on uh, private property with, with a gravel runway, and... I was living there, and then at one point I was working in Wolf Lake, which is the biggest air park in Alaska with, oh, got to be 100 and some homes on it, but constant Super Cubs, 185s, always in and out. Um, so I, I, I really want to make it my whole life without ever not living on a runway, you know. <laughs> it's, it's been all right so far. That's a pretty awesome goal to have. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. <laughs> the, uh, you've mentioned a few times here your dad uh, – it sounds like he's pretty heavily influenced who you are today. Can you tell us a little bit about your dad? Sure. So uh, in aviation terms, my dad grew up just building model planes in uh, Michigan. And in his 20s, he showed an interest. That was whenever he was able to start affording flight lessons. And I uh, started in ultralight and eventually worked his way into, um, you know, getting his private in a 172 and 
then bought a Cessna 170B. Uh, and the next day, he left with it. It was it must have been late 20s at this point. He'd already had a Mooney, I suppose, by then. But he bought a 170B, and the next day, he left with it to Alaska and spent six weeks flying around. Didn't know anybody there, didn't know anything, just went there and explored and fell in love with the bush flying. And since then, he's always been passionate about ending up in Alaska. And so I grew up in Virginia and didn't, he didn't want to raise us in Alaska. I suppose wanted to, to keep everything where all our family was, you know, the greater family in, in the Virginia area. So I, uh, we just flew a lot as much as we could and flew around. As I mentioned, uh, every summer of high school, we would take a trip a couple of weeks to a month and go fly around, fly out west, go through all the backcountry strips of Idaho and Montana and, and Nevada and Colorado and meet up with as many other like-minded pilots as we could. And eventually that turned into only flying in Alaska. Uh, so he, from an aviation standpoint, has, since I was born, has pretty much exclusively flown a Super Cub, and that's it. Uh, the same one that he's had the last almost 25 years now. So... Um, I was very fortunate growing up with him to have the exposure and his willingness to share it with me at all times. You know, when it's a father something, he essentially is a 24-7 flight instructor for me, always answering questions and able to, to cram all of his decades of knowledge into my head in, in a relatively short period of time. And um, then gave me the opportunity to and, and the trust to, to take his plane and, and fly it around. Um, and ferry it back and forth to Alaska a few times or all over the States um, and, and given me the opportunity to learn. And that definitely uh, influenced my, well, shaped my abilities and, and, and just, just was the right environment for me to grow up in uh, to, to then go on towards winning Valdez and, and well, most other stole competitions that there are. Um, and that was all a, father-son activity that we did together uh, to go out and practice the, for the events. And uh, it, it made it fun. It made it a worthwhile sport in, in a, one sense of the word to, for him to be the coach and me to be the, the person or the, the athlete out there trying to, trying to win and, and perform. Um, and it was just a, a great environment to to harbor those those that development of those skills as a pilot. So uh, those of us here in the uh, in the room here for the podcast, we're all uh, kind of flatlander pilots from the uh, lower 48 here. I think there is a hill in Wisconsin. I still haven't found it. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But uh, in a few words, can you tell us what is what what is different about flying in Alaska? I mean. Aside from everything, what, what, what would you uh, <laughs> what what would you uh, describe Alaska like to a uh, to a pilot from uh, your typical pilot from the lower forty eight? Well, everything in Alaska is just massive. You know, a, a ten thousand foot peak in the lower forty eight is pretty big, and in Alaska, it's just a, a hill. You know, everything up there is so vast and expansive. Um, you know, you can see. Mount McKinley or Denali from literally hundreds of miles away because it's just so massive and that expands to everything in the rest of the state, the, the animals and, um, the lakes and the rivers, the mountains, all of it are, are 
just vast. And to, to see that from the skies really, well, it's really the only way to see the state is from the sky because there's so few roads that, that, or ways to access the terrain. The only real way to do it is by airplane. And the only real way to land there is, uh, in a, a backcountry plane, a bush plane that, that has the ability to land off airport where there generally is not a runway or even an improved strip, uh, in, in the majority of locations in Alaska. So, and it's also, it's also a very aviation literate, um, state. I mean, even, even those who aren't pilots, uh, are still are very familiar with aviation up there, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Everyone understands the nature of the weather in Alaska, you know, can change in an instant. The mountain ranges create their own weather systems and they, they understand that whenever, um, well, to, to get out to so many of these locations, you rely on airplanes to take the food and the gas and the water even to, to some places. Uh, and whenever the weather goes bad, there's a reason that airplanes have the right of way over cars on any roads and highways in Alaska is because if you have a stretch of highway that, that serves as a, a perfect runway if the weather gets low or if you have a mechanical issue or anything. So uh, there are many signs across the state that say aircraft have right of way and, and people just growing up in that environment understand how necessary aviation is for so many of the communities, big and small, in Alaska. I think we need to get some of those signs. <laughs> yeah, yes. And just start <laughs> – yeah putting them on posts and, and uh, sticking them up around here and see what happens. Yes. Yeah, it'll be great That's... in my neighborhood. It'll, that would really shorten my commute. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's fantastic. Uh, so, Bobby, in, a, in addition to Alaska, you know, mentioned earlier you've flown in, in uh, almost all uh, 50 states. So a couple of questions. First of all, uh, what are the states you haven't flown in? Uh, I think it would be the central south, like Louisiana and Mississippi, Alabama, that area. Uh, just would not, I just never crossed that path, uh, in our, in our flying. And, and those may be the only three States I haven't been to. I think that those three in Wyoming are the only ones I have left. Well, I guess I've been to them in the airlines now, but, um, I think Wyoming's the only state I have left to go to overall. I've been very close. We flew by Wyoming one time when I was maybe 14 and we're about 10 miles away from it. My dad said, Hey, do you want to land in this state? And I was really tired that day. For some reason I didn't. And that's, that's, uh, something I need to go back and, and make a mission out of is, is to, to go land in Wyoming because, because I had, I was so close one time and didn't do it. And now we're going to get uh, a whole bunch of green dot hate mail from our listeners in Wyoming. <laughs> saying, really? What's wrong with us? So don't worry. No, I, I would love, I would love to go there without a doubt. So, in addition to uh, to the U.S., you were telling us uh, just before we started the show about some uh, other recent flying you did in uh, in a place that's not always known first and foremost for for uh, general aviation. So tell us about your trip to Iceland. Yeah, so August I went with some friends that I met uh, at Sun and Fun a few years back, and I'd, I'd met them through a group on Facebook, really, and they had one guy in particular. He's an airline pilot in Iceland. He said, hey, a group of six of us are coming to Sun and Fun. I know you're in Florida part of the time, and, and I've seen your videos, that type of thing. And, and, you know, it'd be great to talk to you and just, you know, chat about Super Cubs. Well, of course, that's what that's what these big fly-ins are for is, is to meet like-minded individuals. And so we get to talking, and he says, hey, we have this cub, and, 
and our, our friend has another cub that you could borrow or rent uh, if you were to come. And it took a few years to line up a time that worked for us both, but but August it worked out. And, and I took a friend of mine, Chris. He is a world-renowned photographer, and you should be seeing hopefully some of his photos being published from this trip that are just honestly out of this world uh, because in Iceland, most of the country is legal to land off airport. Uh, and there are actually a surprising amount of strips that were used uh, just, just for access to the backcountry. And uh, the, that volcanic rock has made a lot of level areas that are very landable. Um, you know, the, these gravel runways are as, as smooth as, um, you know, any, any other dirt or grass runway you'd find in, in America. And so we were able to just fly around and see these famous volcanoes and uh lagoons and everything that uh, again is, is so difficult to access without spending days on these off-road vehicles and um seeing it all from the air by super cub is is astounding so there there are very few super cubs there there's only a, a handful uh, one of the ones that was flying with us had just been imported from america a few months before and there are a few more being built uh, as as this backcountry flying thing has really exploded over the last maybe five years or so uh people in iceland have taken note and and one guy in particular kind of spearheaded it this is my buddy arner that i'm that i was flying with uh so come next year there will probably be maybe 10 super cubs flying around iceland now um and again it's, it's just such an amazing way to see it in fact he he mounts mountain bikes onto his wings and he can, uh, his, his plane was on the cover of AOPA about six months ago, uh, with mountain bikes strapped to the wings. And, and as of two days ago, he now has a surfboard mount finished for <laughs> belly. So wow. he, he's, he's on, a, he's on a trip right now, um, where they're flying around and landing on beaches to, you know, they can see the surf from the air and they can just land on any beach basically and go surfing and it, and save days of travel time to get to and from these these remote locations. Well, and, and what is Iceland known for if not it's great surfing? <laughs> well, <laughs> we, uh, it's the first place that actually, comes to mind. Actually, so my, my friend Chris that I mentioned, he made a film called Under an Arctic Sky about surfing in Iceland in the wintertime uh, wow. under the Northern Lights. And that's available like on iTunes and and maybe Netflix and stuff. And that's that's how I found him was. Well, I already followed him on Instagram. He has about three million followers and he he had made that he was I was on reserve in New York City for the airlines and he was premiering this this film. And I knew that he was going to be there. So I went and watched the film and got to talking to him and. And he had actually seen one or two of my videos at that point. And so we just made this plan like, hey, some point in the future, we're going to go to Iceland and we're going to make um, we're going to take some cool pictures and just make a, a, a week out of flying around and, and seeing what we can see and just having an adventure out of it. And so that's exactly what we did. Um, and he uh, those those pictures, well, you can see some of them on his on his account, which I'll, I'll give you guys the link to. Um, but it, it, you know, honestly, it is one of the better, well, now becoming better known places to surf, even though it is so cold there. Uh, but we're going to go back and make another, uh, little documentary or, or something similar to that about surfing with a super cub. Uh, That's because awesome. I think this is the first guy to put a surfboard in a super cub and, and go, go use it. So, 
Um, it, it is uh, it, these these Cubs uh, in the greater scheme are able to get into so many places and, and just they're a tool to access the backcountry um, to, to go out and you know you look at the high sierra flying and all the different places that that there are to land around there go see the the 747 from burning man and and go land on a mountain go fly by the geysers and and hit all the strips in utah and and all the strips in idaho uh use them for camping for hunting for fishing for surfing and mountain biking now it's it's uh just a a incredibly unique way to access the terrain nowadays so I know, I mean, I know one of the things that we really want to talk about today is your, your, your Valdez flying and you've won the Valdez competition multiple times. Um, that's amazing. Just, just wondering how do you set out to accomplish something like that? If there's, if there's somebody listening that, that, you know, maybe wants to do something like that, could you tell them some advice, something that you followed? Yeah. So I, won uh from 2012 through 2016 so five years in a row uh currently have the record there in the it was overall and now um frank knapp has beaten my record overall but i still do have the experimental class record like the the and whereas his is now in the light sport category uh if you're familiar with his plane it's um quite a bit lighter about 500 and something pounds and 200 horsepower which is uh a uh, very uh, dedicated aircraft for the competitions themselves. Uh, but to, to go out and win like that and even just, just compete and have fun with it really takes just a lot of work day in and day out of really dedicating all of your, your time flying, at least this is what I was doing, towards furthering your skill set and your – uh, you know, and enhancing your abilities both with the aircraft and and your own pilot, you know, flying skills uh, to to go out and and learn how to not only take off short but land short. And really, that competition I think is won in the landing. It's the for those of you that are listening that are not quite familiar with the rules. The short takeoff and landing competition is just whoever can take off and land in the shortest distance combined. So you get two heats or two sets of scores. It's it's your first takeoff and landing combined and then your second takeoff and landing combined. So the takeoff is easy enough. It's just a function of horsepower and a little bit of technique um, and the, the inherent abilities of the aircraft. You just take off and they measure you from a, a chalk line. They measure the distance and, and say it's 100 feet. So you, you have a 100 foot takeoff and then you come around and land. Uh, say you know that you can land your plane in, in another 100 feet, but that starts from the line that's on the ground so you have to have a very accurate touchdown so if you touch 50 feet after the line and have a 100 foot landing then you have a 150 foot landing technically but if you touch down a foot before the line then you're disqualified so you want to be as close to the line on or after it as possible while also at the right speed and configuration to, to make a short landing so I, th I think that that's where the the skill and technique is involved um and my current record is a 24 foot takeoff and a 20 foot landing so 44 feet combined and both of my landings that year were actually 20 feet and i had a little bit of help from the wind um i'd say significant it was steady at 11 miles an hour wind uh which is not a ton but enough to really make it uh, a 
improvement in the distances. Um, whereas I think a normal super cub under that, that circumstances would be in the mid 100 foot range, uh, with the, with that type of wind, hundred foot takeoff and landing each. So, uh, to, to get out and, and win like that really took the development of the skills. And that was something my dad worked with me with. I worked with me on almost every day after school, whether it was five landings or 50 a day, we would fly probably four or five days a week, always through the winter where, you know, the winter, there's not much snow in Virginia. So I was able to practice on asphalt or grass and he would have a wind gauge and a radio and uh, a measuring wheel. And we'd put out cones and chalk and, and just practice. And he would tell me what the winds were and tell me how my touchdown looked, how far it was from the line, what my rollout distance was, how long my takeoff was, what, you know, if I rotated too soon or too late, if I left some on the table by rotating too late or added too much drag too early and, and actually extended the takeoff by rotating too early, that type of thing. And it was just constant data collection of and development of a skill because when, when I started, I, I couldn't find anywhere to really read other than some forums, um, which is a lot of opinion based knowledge on that, uh, on how the best way to do this was and and what the best modifications for the plane were. So we were very methodical and and wrote down all the distances it took and, you know, charted out what techniques worked the best and developed what I use today as, as my technique for a short takeoff and landing, uh, as well as modified the plane, added different suspension, tried different propellers, uh, you know, added some horsepower, different vortex generators, took out weight, you know, all, all these little things, they, they all each add one or two or 3% and, and combined, they make a, a big difference in the, um, just the abilities of the aircraft itself, which is, is, uh, I think it's, it's a good mix of maybe 50% pilot abilities and 50% aircraft abilities. Uh, cause you could, Spend some people can spend a lot of money on an airplane that flies very well, but if they don't put in the time and the the work and the effort to develop their skill set, then um, it's just a little bit futile there. So it's uh, in Valdez, you know, it, it doesn't discriminate based on uh, on how much. Well, it really does show how much work the pilots put in, because it it's whenever you get up to that caliber of pilots, you're you really, um, everyone has almost the same aircraft. And so it comes down to skill at that point. I, um, I think, and that really shows because so many of the distances are three or five or 10 feet apart between first and third or fifth place, uh, in some years of the competition. So, um, you talked a little bit about how you have your plane set up and, and, uh, the kind of the process that you go, you went through to, to, uh, to build it. Um, for those not familiar, can you talk about your black super cub and, uh, kind of the process it took you to, uh, uh, to build that aircraft? Sure. So, uh, it goes back to the, starting with a, a bare bones stock super cub that, that we did start with and we start doing all the normal STCs. And then we get to the point where it's like, wow, this would be really cool if we could add more flaps or it would be really cool if we could try this other propeller. Um, so we kind of, over the course of a few years, I suppose, we kind of sketched out what we thought would work best, uh, both from our own, um, my dad and I's thoughts on what would work. And then also, uh, looking at other people, you know, analyze, analyzing what their modifications were and, and seeing if we thought they would work based on videos or flying the airplanes or, 
whatever. So we came up with a list of, I mean, hundreds of, of different tiny little modifications, some of them or massive modifications like the slats or the roll spoilers or the double slotted flaps that are 80% span um, to the suspension and, and changing the location of the engine to help with the CG and um, a lot of different things. So that, that black plane ended up being um, plane. It sits up pretty tall and we brought the engine back uh, seven inches to accommodate for the heavier engine because you know the, the fuselage geometry on a super cub is the same as you know a 90 horse but then you start putting these 200 horsepower engines on there and they're much much heavier in the same location so a basic lever you you move the weight back and it, it won't make as much of a difference on the cg and uh an aft cg is ideal for slow flight because uh, you don't have to hold all the weight of the nose up there um, up in the air. So that's, you know, one of, one of the bigger modifications and we, we designed some custom suspension for it. Um, the slats make a big difference in terms of the ability to hang on the prop and the, the wing really just mushes at that point. It doesn't stall. You just get to the point where you're adding so much drag in the region of reverse command that, that it's, uh, you don't have the ability to, um, get the nose higher and higher, which, you know, we're sustaining, Probably a, a 25 degree deck angle, is, uh, whenever if you're just flying straight and level, and and you see those videos, it's guys touching down with the tailwheel and the mains, you know, three or four feet off the ground because the nose is just so high up in the air. So, um, it whenever we added the slat, it, it added a different technique, a uh, much steeper approach, so you could still harness the abilities of the slat, but also be able to see over the nose. Um, and, and the, that, that plane took a lot to learn, um, it's idiosyncrasies because we changed so much, um, to make it fly slow, extended the wings and, and the tail and, uh, changed the CG and, and it, but it is an amazing flying aircraft. It, it does fly slow, you know, honest stall speed, no wind, sea level standard day is going to be, you know, somewhere in the, the 27 or 28 mile an hour range. And that's not indicated because at that angle of attack indicator doesn't work, but, uh, the, that's, you know, ground speeds in a, a square. Uh, and that's, that's quite slow. I mean, only to have to accelerate from zero to call it 30 miles an hour on the takeoff and, and decelerate from 30 down to zero takes very little distance. And, and reducing that energy is, is key to, to making a short takeoff and a short landing. So, um, just one more question on the on the build process: Were you constrained, or what constraints were you working with for the category that you're competing in, uh, if any? Uh, experimental is just anything goes, essentially. Uh, I mean, guys are running nitrous. Uh, nobody recently has run a turbo, uh, but it is you know completely plausible. Um, now, you know, I'm sure Draco is going to show up next year. For those of you not familiar, it's a very, very powerful PT6 powered Wilga. Um, and he'll, he would go in the experimental category because he is an experimental aircraft. So it's any weight, anything goes. Uh, now they have recently taken uh, or added, I guess three years ago, added a light sport category. And that is also experimental, but with a different weight class. Uh, so back uh, 2015, I beat frank knapp and he's the one with the little cub uh the one without the, the fabric on the fuselage or the wingtips or the cowling or anything the yellow one i beat him in the in basically the the last year of unlimited anything goes experimental class before they divided it into certified or sorry light sport and experimental uh so but in that 
in the experimental category, it's it's anything goes. There's there's no limits um, on RPM. There's no limits on propellers. There's no limits on on anything. It's it's just if you want to do it to your plane and your experimental category, you can do it. And if you think it'll help perform, then go for it. That's very very cool. Um, when you talked about uh, your Valdez record, you know those combined distances. Um, what's your you're outside of Valdez. Just what's the the shortest landing you've ever done? Period. Well, that's a interesting question because I don't know how to measure a negative ground roll. Does that count as zero, or does that? <laughs> I think it sounds it sounds like less than zero. So less. Uh, yeah. <laughs> no, I've I've touched down. Um, I've touched down at zero, and and the compression of the landing as you release the you know as you release the breaks it'll the plane will roll backwards um it's 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 quite a strange feeling it, it's much more akin to a helicopter than than an aircraft at that point because you're looking straight down on on your final approach so through all this what do you think the most important thing you've learned in your flying experiences uh, has been i think uh the most important thing i've learned that i can transfer over to the airlines or to any other uh, facet of aviation that I've, that I've been a part of is an understanding of angle of attack and what it means whenever you are increasing your angle of attack, what's that doing to your drag, what you're going to have to do to thrust. Um, it, it's it's a, a portion of the stick and rudder skill that uh, really applies to anything that you fly is knowing that that plane is going to stall at a certain angle of attack and that can be any attitude upside down vertical up or down you know in a turn because i think that the biggest you know well one i mean i know that one of the biggest problems and 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 killers of in aviation is the base to final turn the stall spin accident the overloading um and and relying on indicated airspeed versus you know your actual uh, your actual stall that's that's going to change based on loading and it's going to change based on density, altitude, and, and temperature and everything, whereas your angle of attack is always going to be the same when um, whenever you're asking for any type of performance from the aircraft, specifically avoiding a stall. Yeah, in my role at, uh, at EAA, I do a lot of the aviation safety work, and you know we've been pushing a lot, the entire industry has been pushing a lot of angle of attack awareness in the last few years, and I really hope that that's part of what's been contributing to the uh, to the dropping uh, accident rate um, is better understanding of that yeah I hope so too and thank you for your efforts with that I know it's it's a benefit for everyone involved in aviation whenever they understand angle of attack better well yeah and it's it's just kind of a constant constant education campaign it never really ends so during uh, air venture we have uh, kind of an exhibition uh, stole competition uh, with uh, those of you who are uh, uh, those of you in, in the kind of the, the competition stole community that are able to come out, uh, what's that been like to compete in? So that has been a blast. I mean, the, the hosts at Oshkosh are just incredible. They, they give us such great hospitality towards um, where we park our planes and the, the transportation around the airport and, and uh, been gracious enough to give us some hotel rooms and, uh, let us take part in the safety briefings because we are part of the the air show on the main runway sometimes, and also 
mostly now on the the grass ultralight field at the south end of the runway uh, and and the ability to, to to be in the performers area and, and interact interact with all the other air show performers you know you're there with rob holland you're there with aeroshow it's it's really a cool time and and honestly one of my best friendships that i've created um over the years has been with one of the air traffic controllers from oshkosh um i when you're volunteered to it was the winds very strong out of the west and i volunteered to take the south runway the runway 18 um because it said so in the atis because they were holding to get in uh, and they said if able please take runway 18 so i did I, I landed on runway 18 but i i only used about five feet of it because i landed into the wind uh, and so I, at that point I had about a two mile long runway and the air traffic controller said, dang, that's a wide runway. And I was able to stop. Actually, I was, I was on the blue dot. Actually, I stopped inside of the blue dot and which was right at show center there and was able to taxi to parking, um, very close by. And, and the, the controller came down and, and we talked and he invited me for a tour of the tower. And, and, uh, now he actually works in the, the FA command center in Washington, DC. And, and he's, I just had dinner with him or lunch with him the other day. Um, so it's, it's friendships like that, that, that Oshkosh has provided to, to all of us. And we're all so grateful in the, the Stoll community because, you know, having us down there at the ultralight field, I mean, there's thousands of people. Somebody told me there's, you know, I, I have no idea how many thousands, but there was so many people down there watching your, your up close and personal with these guys flying and they're landing on, you know, a couple, just a couple hundred feet away from you right there. And then they're, they're parking the planes and they're getting out and, and we're able to interact with the crowd and, and really feel the energy from the crowd right there instead of, you know, as, as a little bit further, uh, as you know, as the crowd is a little bit further away in the normal air show. Uh, so people have really taken a liking to this backcountry flying and, and it's something, uh, showcasing it at Oshkosh, I, I believe is, is wonderful because, not only the, the flying, but also the some of the forums that people are able to do about aircraft modifications and techniques. I've, I've given a few of those. And it's, it's, you know, one of the few parts of aviation that really are growing year over year. You know, you have these, these manufacturers, you have Cub Crafters, you have Kit Fox, you have uh, Just Aircraft with the Super Stole. And uh, these guys are all producing record amounts of, of airframes every year, whether those are kits or factory built aircraft, because people see that this is just a cub or a cub type airplane and it doesn't require dedicating your life to it like aerobatics does. And it also requires a lot less money that if you're, if you're in the interest of, you know, if you're in aviation, it's, it's generally well within the, the realm of affordability uh, to be able to go take this plane and transfer uh, and, and, and take it off airport and, and land in your friend's field or go for a camping trip or a fishing trip or something. And um, that uh, being able to showcase that at Oshkosh, you know, the biggest air show in the world has has been really good all around for all of us as far as <clears throat> getting the word out and, and spreading spreading our passion for aviation. And it, it really has shown it's grown. You, you look at the high Sierra fly and they had over 400 aircraft this year in a place that doesn't even have a facility know what running water or anything you have to bring everything in all your food all your your supplies um and 400 people to to come and show up at off airport venues is just absolutely unheard of i mean that's that's many 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 times bigger than any other event um that is off airport and it's just going to continue to grow they had a, a, a great showing this year and um, as you guys have, have also already showcased with in some of your um some of your publications Right. Yeah, we do have a, uh, a story coming up uh, 
early next spring about uh, this last year's high Sierra fly in. So, um, that's that's exciting stuff, and that growth that you point out is is fantastic, and that's uh, whether you're into the sort of uh, fun backcountry flying or not. And I don't know why you wouldn't be, but that kind of enthusiasm is good for all of us uh, in in general aviation. Absolutely. Um, so, Bobby, you've you've referred to uh, airline flying a little bit uh, a, a couple of times throughout the episode. Uh, you're flying uh, as a first officer for uh, Endeavor right now. Is that correct? That's correct. So I'm an Atlanta-based uh, CRJ-900 first officer. So that's a 76-passenger jet. It's uh, Delta Connection flying. If you, if you ride on a Delta flight and they say it's Delta Connection, that's you know it's one of the it'll be Republic or SkyWest or Endeavor or GoJet or or one of the one of the contracted regional sure. carriers. So I'm about to become a captain on there and just a another couple months, uh, pushing a thousand hours of airline time now uh, since wow. a year and a half, um, approximately. And most of that time I was New York city based. Now I am Atlanta based, which is great for the commute to Spruce Creek here in, here in Daytona. Um, and my goal is to get on with the major airline and would, would really like to get into the international operations, you know, flying a 767 or an A330 or, or something, like that. Um, I've had a great mentor here in the airline side of things. He, some of you may be familiar with the Jetmobile from Oshkosh one year and Sun and Fun every year, which is a 747 engine cowling golf cart. Um, it's, it's all a one-off custom made golf cart that is huge. It's like 11 feet tall. That is, uh, actually my landlord, Paul, he is a Triple seven captain for Delta was on the 747 for about 25 years, and he has been instrumental in, in showing me the ropes of the airline world and 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 just how to do it all. And and um, I've lived I've rented from him here in Spruce Creek for five years now, and about two years ago, or sorry, two years into it, so three and a half years ago, he actually set me up with his niece. And we've been dating now for three and a half years. Um, <laughs> wow. So it, it's um, I he has been a very, very big influence on me, both in my personal life and in my airline career. Uh, and I'm, I'm hoping to take that into, um, you know, through his guidance, I've, I've really been able to learn a lot about aviation, expand. You know, there's a point in time when I knew a lot about Super Cubs and nothing else. Uh, and, and now it's... Um, I've, I've been able to expand my my abilities and, and work on those skills and, and use him as I referenced earlier um, as as a, a a person to to ask all these questions to and to learn from about airline operations about the 121 world um, like like I did with my dad growing up it's a 24/7 CFI that you're um, that you're around all the time and, and using to uh, and, and you know one thing I've I've that I can recommend to people is to just take those connections and those, um, those people around you that, that are the foundations in your life and, and use, and, you know, learn as much as you possibly can from them, ask questions and, and use them as a, as a resource, uh, to further your knowledge and, and further your abilities, because, you know, we all start in this game from, from square one with zero hours and, and it's just do everything that, that you can to, to, to learn as much as you can and, and find out as much about aviation as, as you can. And it's, I haven't found anything in aviation that I, that I don't like yet. So <laughs> it's, uh, I'm excited to, to continue that in the airlines. Well, it's pretty amazing that, uh, that, you know, through 
through one guy, you've got career development, a place to live, and a girlfriend. That's, yeah, uh, it, it's it, that's it a guy really to continue amazing. to be nice to. <laughs> And, yes, thank you, Paul, if you're listening. <laughs> that is absolutely fantastic. So we uh, we have to ask one last uh, question. Uh, Tom actually scribbled this down a minute ago, and we loved it. Um, what's the shortest you've landed the CRJ? Oh, I am lucky to get that under a mile. <laughs> a mile. <laughs> uh, no, I mean, I, I've, I try to make, um, you know, safe, smooth landings. Um, <laughs> what, what, a tendency in, in the... The airline world, I think, is to try to make a, a very smooth landing, and that usually turns into a long landing. Uh, and so, understanding, like I was talking about earlier, your your angle of attack and and your pitch and power, uh, just just basic stick and rudder skills uh, for making a touchdown, albeit a smooth one, in the touchdown zone. You know, on the the thousand foot markers or, or very close to those, and and being able to make a, a steady not um, aggressive or, or jerky rollout and, and smooth operation for the passengers uh, to, so that they don't, they can't really tell that they're decelerating. I mean, the, 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 sh- it's not necessarily uh, always trying to make a short landing. I mean, I don't think we even go into any runways lower, you know, shorter than, than 6,000 feet long or 5,500 feet long. And uh, that may sound, you know, that's obviously well over a mile. Um, you know, you can, you can get them in and, and shorter than that because we have margins. Uh, but it's the the goal in the airlines is to to be safe and and smooth, not short. Well, come on, you've at least tried it in the sim, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, okay. Okay. You got me. <laughs> <laughs> but we're not going to see you out there on the ramp like tearing seats out uh, of the CRJ and and emptying the baggage bays just to to lighten it up oh, and and to see what I you can think, do. I don't think I can take much of a hit in this 60,000 pound empty weight. That's uh, <laughs> you know, fuel and everything. So no, no, that's uh. Probably not going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> well, if it does, you let us know. So, yeah, Bobby, thanks so much for taking some time to join us today. This has been a real fun episode. It's been great to to uh, to listen to your your stories and your exploits, and uh, and certainly anybody out there who hasn't uh, come across your videos, I, I can't imagine there's anybody who hasn't at this point. But uh, but do check those out. As I said, we'll uh, link to a couple of them in the uh, the post uh, that goes up with this podcast on inspired.ea.org. And uh, otherwise, uh, get out there, do a Google search, and you'll be amazed uh, at, uh, at what you see uh, this gentleman doing with an airplane. So with that, our ongoing thanks to everybody out there who listens faithfully, who has subscribed. Uh, special thanks to those who give us those uh, those great reviews uh, on iTunes, uh, Google Play, and send us feedback at feedback at eaa.org. You leave great comments on the uh, the blog posts that go up with each podcast episode. And without you uh, and those, uh, those bits of feedback, we would not be able to continue. So we appreciate that, and please keep it up. And with that... We look forward to catching up with you next time when you're cleared to land on the green dot. <laughs>